Pentecost is one of those celebrations, one of those milestones in the life of the church that has its roots of the Old Testament in the gatherings of Israel in Jerusalem, in the gatherings of Israel in Jerusalem around temple worship. And what happens on the day of Pentecost after they have been waiting and Jesus told them to wait The Holy Spirit comes down. Comes down in the midst of a prayer meeting. Comes down and there are tongues of fire on people's head. You remember in the Old Testament that pillar of fire that that led God's people out of Egypt, led God's people through the Red Sea, led God's people in the wilderness for 40 years, was on top of the temple, until the temple was destroyed when the people were exiled. Now, I've chosen to start because when I looked at this, I said, this is a lot of information. This is a lot of things that we could think about. But I started with verse 36. It says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. See, we're going back to that death by crucifixion, burial, resurrection, rhythm in Christ's life. And what he is doing is putting it in the context both of the crucifixion, but he says God has made him both Lord. In other words, he is the one who is king. He is the one who is sovereign. And Christ, that he is the redeemer. He is the Messiah. And this Jesus, the man Jesus, whom you crucified. They talk about his work, his character, who he is. That he really was a man. He really was God. He is the Redeemer. You see, we live in a generation that wants to define and redefine almost everything. And we have to be very careful that we, as people who trust in Jesus Christ, trust in the Christ that God sent. That so our Lord Jesus Christ is not something we have made up to adapt to a culture to adapt to a language, to adapt to a situation, but we listen and say, this is who God has sent. Earlier in the sermon in Acts 2, verse 22, Peter said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see, we have this rhythm of what Christ had started in terms of Death, burial, resurrection. 
that God raised him up, that he loosed the pangs of death because death could not hold him. So what is the response of the people, the crowd? Verse 37 says, But now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? When I read that about people being cut to the heart by the gospel, by the preaching, by the revelation and witness of who Jesus Christ is, that they're cut to the heart, that they... They feel that piercing. I mean, there's all kinds of English translations about what the preaching of Peter did and the movement of the Holy Spirit did in terms of cutting them to the heart. And the bottom line, everybody agrees, whatever English word they use there for cut is that it caused pain. It, it caused <coughs> what we have come to think of is the revelation of God, a holy God, is here. And the only response is, what shall we do? They knew something was wrong, something was missing. You see, that's one of the things about when, when God, as it talks, and we'll get to it later on, but when he calls us to himself, is oftentimes we go through that period initially and later on, of being cut to the heart. And we have to be very careful that if we think that, oh, that only happens once in our lives. No, it can happen many times when God uses his word and uses his spirit and uses prayer and, and worship and all of that to cut to our hearts for us to realize the only thing I can depend upon is what God has done through Jesus Christ. But it gets deep into my heart. The world that we live in oftentimes creates a callousness to the damage that can be done by sin. So we don't see it. We don't want to see it in our own lives. And so when you think about worship and preaching in this church, one of the goals of preaching in any worship service is that people would be cut to the heart, that the word of God would reach in and take hold. That it's not just some story, it's not just entertainment, but it's something that grabs the very heart of who you are. Now, one of the beautiful things about when God does that, when he's calling people to himself, and we get to that point of pain, of realization, of revelation about who we are and what, we, what do we need to do, he's always there to answer. Now, his answer, one, is what Jesus said we were to be witnesses to. But it's not something the world is used to thinking about. Jesus in, you know, I'm, it, I wrote now the word in echoes because I see Luke just weaving Acts and Luke together. 
In Luke 24, it says, And the repentance for the forgiveness of sin shall be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. (coughs) Then he opened their minds to understand Scripture, and he said, Thus it is written. See, that's one of the things about studying the Bible, about listening to preaching and being in Bible studies, is that God can use it to get a hold of our heart, and we realize that we indeed need to repent, because he says to them, what should we do? And his first words he says is repent, which is what Jesus said we need to be witnesses to, and we needed to proclaim. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The message of repentance is always accompanied with the promise of forgiveness. See, sometimes repentance is portrayed both in cultural things and in literature, you know, like this heavy load that, you know, has no answer and it's meant to feel bad. But no, repentance is always presented as the gateway to forgiveness. Always. Because that's why Christ died, so we could be forgiven. It starts with repentance. And as I said earlier in the confession of sin, see, it's not just saying, oh, I've sinned. Confession is the beginning because repentance is turning away from the sin and turning to Jesus Christ to be like him. That's what repentance is. See, a lot of people, when they they talk about forgiveness, when you talk about being forgiven in something, they want people just to forget it rather than to deal with it. See, when I repent of my sins, I'm saying only Christ can pay the cost. Only Christ can cover it with his blood. And so this idea of forgiveness is at the central of our witness to Jesus Christ, that people really can be forgiven of their sins. But it has to be the way Christ presents it. It's not some kind of self-help, motivational therapy. Repent and be baptized. The point about being baptized is that there is this public recognition that I have confessed my sins, I have been forgiven, and I want to identify with the cleansing blood of Christ. It's part of the covenant promises, which we'll talk about at other times. And oftentimes, when we talk to people about, say, celebrating or taking part of the Lord's Supper, Because baptism is a gateway sacrament to the church. It's not that there are all these rules and all this, but yet it is a public profession that I am trusting in Christ who has died on the cross and forgiven my sins. That's what it's all about. And that's why when we work with people through You know, you have pre-evangelism, evangelism, and conversion, and then you have discipleship. 
And I said earlier this month, or last month, I guess, well, yeah, last month, that Os Guinness said it's easier to convert people than it is to disciple people because discipling people is untangling them from their background, their culture, their beliefs, their thoughts, and bringing them into line with Christ. But you see, there are a lot of people in our communities, families, neighborhoods, whatever, who need to have their sins forgiven, but don't know that's what they need. Because they think that they're in charge. Or they give whoever's in charge to somebody else. People carry around guilt. It may not be because of the Bible, but they've done things or things have happened and they know they've done something wrong, that there's something missing. See, again, talking to people, talking to your neighbors, talking to a friend about having their sins forgiven means that they need to come to a point in their life where they are willing to admit that I need to confess my sins, I need to repent, I need to receive forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can give me. And that is so strange, so out of people's context or the way they think about it that that there really is, you know, they want forgiveness. See, what is it talking about here? Forgiveness for sins. See, when you put that word sins in there, you're bringing in God because sin is against God. And see, that's where being cut to the heart and all of a sudden realizing that, that God is getting a hold of me and that can be scary because all of a sudden you may have to face things that you've never faced before. You may need to confess sins that you've never had to face, but you can face them because of the shed blood of Christ. Look, look what is following that after forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, that's something that at least in some of my Presbyterian circles and my background, talking about the Holy Spirit makes people nervous, even though Presbyterian Reformed people have been the people of the Holy Spirit because we believe in the sovereignty of God. There's all kinds of things, but people's relationship with the Holy Spirit can be such a mixture of good things and, and not so good things. But the first thing we have to understand is it's a gift that is given to us. It's not something we earn. It's not something we create. In your life, do you con connect in your head and in your heart that when you are forgiven, the Holy Spirit is there? See, they, they were waiting. I'm Jesus said in Luke 24, 49, And behold, I am sending the promise from my Father to you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
See, it's a gift. Do you acknowledge that gift that you have been given? Is that part of the way you think about your life, about your Christianity? Is that you have been given the Holy Spirit? You see, we can never make another Christian feel like a second-class citizen, a second-class Christian, and say, oh, you don't have the Holy Spirit yet. We can never do that because it's a gift that God says, I'm going to give you when your sins are forgiven. I don't know how many people I've struggled to help them to understand that. Because receiving the Holy Spirit is one of those by-faith things, that you trust the Word of God. That God says you're forgiven and you have my spirit. Now, we can go and we won't today, but I can just mention the Paul in Romans when he talks about the spirit of adoption. We have talked about it in relationship to the covenant, how God brings us to himself. Remember Abram and Sarai's names were changed when he adopted them, brought them into his family. Then there's this other connection with the Old Testament, with Genesis. See, the promise is to you and to your children, to those who are near and to those who are far off. And until the day I leave, you will hear me coming back to these promises. The promise is to you and your children. That promise that was made in Genesis 17. And now that circumcision has been changed, done away with, and we have baptism. When you look at the baptisms in the book of Acts, how four out of the seven are household baptisms. See, God would have had to say to the people of Israel, oh, your kids aren't included anymore. No, he didn't say that. He says, it's to you and your children. And I know that is a promise that sometimes is hard for parents at different points in their lives and relationships with their children to grab onto. But then he says something that Jesus had referred to that Genesis 12 talks about in terms of the nations. For all who are far off. You see, the the gospel, the people of God are getting ready to expand. They're getting ready to reach out and to travel, to say this message is worth leaving my hometown, leaving my job, leaving my family, leaving the security I have, and going someplace to proclaim it because they need it. One of the things about Facebook that, that just encourages me to no end is I'm connected with missionaries in different parts of the world, and I see what God is doing. Because sometimes, you know, we get so caught up in, oh, what's God doing right here in my little neighborhood? No, it's in the globe. I see places where people are trying to put the stories of God in an oral story because it's going to be years before they have the written word of God, but they want the oral story so they can get them ready for Jesus Christ. And how they struggle and they work on the words because... Unless you've been involved in translation, I realize some people have here. The words of Christ, the words of God in the Old and the New Testament, 
coming from Hebrew to the native language, what, the, what Wycliffe calls the heart and the hearth language. So people can really hear it. Now, you know, I tell the story that when I was growing up, one of the jobs of Sunday school was to translate the King James Bible into 1950s and 60s kids' ears so we could understand what does these words mean. I remember reading about the beginnings of the translation of the Gallic Bible from the same Greek and Hebrew texts that the King James Bible had used. And I remember it because it was a McFarland that was part of the translation team, the Gallic translation team. But I was impressed how, it, how much time it took because of how much people want to get it right when they translate the word of God. And I think that's why today people are always, you know, we can translate and retranslate and adjust because language changes. But to get people to hear in their language, in their hearts, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When I think about a generation in our cultures, in the English-speaking word, where we, trouble, we, we struggle with people who are lonely, who don't connect with other people for a variety of reasons. And what I want to say is, I want to start you on a path. One of the things that you get as a Christian is you get the Holy Spirit, you get God, because God promised in Genesis 15, I am your shield and your very great reward. You get me. But yet it is a time of faith. It is people saying, I believe God and his word. I trust him that I'm not alone. And then if you are in Christ, you are brought into the family of God as an adopted child. That you are to connect with other brothers and sisters in Christ because of the Holy Spirit. And see, we can't let people keep us at an arm's length because they feel ashamed or they want to hide their sins because we want them to be forgiven. We want them to be forgiven. And see, that's where I think the Holy Spirit using the word of God can help people know that their sins really are forgiven. And then you have these family promises, you have these global promises that are there. Peter slips in God's grace in a way, he says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See, the covenant is about God reaching out, about God in his grace bringing us to himself. See, that's another argument, message, witness to a lonely world is that God calls people to himself. You are not alone. See, it goes all the way back to remember what happened in the garden when God pushed them out because they disobeyed. And now we hear forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, everyone whom 
the Lord our God calls to himself. See, that's why we do evangelism. That's why we preach. That's why we talk. Because we believe that God is calling people to himself through the word of God, through being a witness. I mean, I know how hard people's hearts can be. I look at my my generation people in their late 60s, early 70s. And I was thinking about all the stuff we've been through and how hard hard, hard our hearts can be, but yet I believe God calls people to himself. That there is no age group that is outside of God's reach. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I don't know who that everyone is, so I go to everyone. You understand what I'm saying? Is that God is going to work through people to call himself. And in the last, in verse 40, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, the beginning, many other words, you know, we know that everything that Peter said is not in the text. We know that. But yet it does show us that he bore witness. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 24 is that we are to be his witnesses. Peter was bearing witness. He exhorted them. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that You are a gracious and loving God. You're a God who calls people to himself. You're a God who calls us to repent and be forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit. You're a God who makes a promise about our children, about those who are far away. We pray, God, that you would use our church, you would use our relationships, you would use us as your vessels to bring people to yourself. Father, we live with lonely people around us. We pray that we might be able to tell them that you don't have to be lonely, that your sins can be forgiven and you can receive the Holy Spirit, that God is calling you to himself. We pray these things, Jesus, in your most holy name. Amen.